Welcome to this episode of Anti-Capitalist Resistance Podcast. We're joined today by Sharon Noonan Gunning, who is a long-standing activist uh, on the left uh, and is at the moment doing a lot of excellent campaigning around the idea of the right to food. There's a campaign which only came across recently, actually, uh, during some discussions around the cost of living crisis in Lambeth. The campaign is called the Right to Food Campaign. And so I thought we'd invite Sharon onto the podcast to have a chat about that idea of food sovereignty and the right to food more generally and and also any ideas that she has in terms of, you know, how we can actually try and fight for these kind of excellent ideas within the wider, you know, trade union movement and obviously society in general as well. So Sharon, thanks for joining us. Okay. Hi, Simon. No problem. <laughs> so tell us about the Right to Food campaign. When was it set up? What was the what was the background? Well, the Right to Food campaign, Ian Burns' Right to Food campaign was set up around, um, I think it was in 2020. Ian Burns set it up um, alongside fan supporting food banks of Dave Kelly. Um, and so the idea was to fight for um, the basic the basic human right to food in this country, because we don't have that right in this country. And what that means is that, is that we should have access, that everybody should have access to, um, you know, to food that, that is adequate, that is, we have availability of that food. And so it's, it's, it's easily available, you know, to us to buy, we can afford to buy it. And the food is, is nutritious, is culturally appropriate. So that's, that's the idea. And it's a, it's a basic human right. And so it's been, a, it's been accepted um, as a human right by the UN going back to the 1960s and numerous British governments have signed up to it, but we still haven't had that, we still don't have that right in practice in this country. Um, we've also had a situation since the 2000s where there's been some brilliant work by a whole range of sort of non-governmental organisations and lobbyists who have, who, have, who have campaigned at Parliament for the right to food and they've done some brilliant work but we still don't have that right. So where Ian Byrne and Dave Kelly were different was that they were very much based amongst the grassroots and looking, my understanding is that looking what was what was there, that what was missing was how do we build um, not just a social movement, but a labour movement campaign based around the right to food, um, a community-based project that brings together the trade unions, that brings together other working class organisations, for example, around football, around fan supporting food banks with football matches um and um at, you know and, and within our tenants organizations within our communities so that's that's kind of where they they rest they rest building a movement and so it's not relying just purely on parliamentary means or lobbying um but it's building a movement to ensure we actually achieve the right to food this time tell me a little bit more about what the right to food actually means because obviously the common sense view in our current society is that you know, you go out, you get a job, you earn wages, uh, and then you buy f- the food you need. And, you know, if you can't do that, then presumably you can go on some kind of welfare system or benefit system, then they give you money for the food you need. Um, and I think that's that's how obviously most people understand, you know, the way that we get food. And, and obviously, the more money you have, the better food you can get. You know, there's all these things, obviously, it's so linked to the idea of a market economy so what does the right to food actually mean in that context well it is that well first and foremost it's been able to afford food and so the first thing that Ian Byrne argues is that there should be a proportion of our wages or our income should be um should should, should be um uh, based on food costs 
But then the argument also goes that there should also be at fuel costs and there are other basic needs costs should be built into our living wages. But just looking at food, it is the argument that our, that our income should, should be based on food costs. Part of it should be based on food costs. Otherwise, we'll never be able to afford food. And so we can call for the affordability for food to be sort of um, sort of accessible. But if we, you know, but we if we can't afford it, then it's not accessible. So that's sort of the key thing is making sure we've actually got the money to be able to 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 afford food um, and then for foods to be available to so the foods that we want, um, that we need, you know, the nutritious and culturally appropriate foods should be available in our high streets, which, again, they're not. So depending on where you live, like if you live in obviously in an affluent area, then you have both the affordability, you have, you know, um, accessibility, you can afford to. You can afford to buy the food and you've got availability of, of that food, you know, good quality, nutritious foods. But that um, but often in poor working class areas, you haven't you could, you know, the only food that you can afford is the food that's it's um, less nutritious foods. It's not because you want that food. It's because all that is, it's all that is available to you. It's all that's made available to you. What's available to who, where and when. Um, and they determine that not just by through planning, which keeps reproducing where we live and what food, what shops we've got on our high streets, fast food shops and, and other foods that aren't ultra, foods that sort of promote ultra, ultra processed foods. It's the market that determines that, whether it's through planning and planning never changing, like it hasn't changed in decades um, or through advertising for algorithms that now track us. But everywhere we go, you know, we get our postcodes get get um get taken down and with the foods that we buy gets reproduced in our high streets and so we don't really have the choice it's all choice edited whether it's in our high streets whether it's in our supermarkets the amount of money that we have deems what we can what we can eat and the the, the, the quality of that food you know ultimately the right to food has got to be you know is about shaking up the the market system because um you know, we can argue for reforms, but ultimately we've probably got to, well, I believe that we will have to shake up the market system. Two things that you mentioned there, which I think are very interesting, obviously, is the when you talk about planning, I think you're talking about the failure of local government councils to properly plan the high street. Is that right? Because obviously um, there's very few regulations now about, about what goes on the high street. So you can just have four or five fast food shops in a row next to each other. There's very little considered planning put into what goes on the high streets, which is uh, which is a big problem. And the other the other thing that you mentioned, which I thought was very interesting, was the way that supermarkets have so much data on us now through loyalty cards and everything else. You know, they collect huge, huge swathes of consumer data. And obviously they use that to encourage us to buy certain things. But then, as you said, actually, some supermarkets will then decide really what ends up on the aisles of that supermarket in a kind of not quite a postcode lottery because it's not a lottery it's planned it's like it's driven by the data that they've collected on local consumers which is which is quite insidious in a way no it's right they it, that's right it is the data and it is and it is that determines what they, you know what they sell where they sell it but what you're raising about planning um I mean a key thing I think there is a question of food democracy who decides what we can eat um and what and what what say we have over what we you know what we can eat and in most working class communities we don't have that choice we don't have any say and i carried that research because I, I did a phd in um food policy a few years ago 
And that was a uh, part of that was well, I was interviewing uh, working class mothers of higher weight children, children who medically would be classified as, as living with obesity, um, basically asking those working class mothers whether food policy was helping or hindering. And most of them said that it was it was hindering. Or they all said it was hindering. And what, what they identified was the how they saw food policy was how food policy played out in their lives. And that meant, you know, what was available to them in the shops. It, it meant what was available in the high streets um, and that they had no control over what happened on their high streets. They had no control of the fast food outlets coming into the high streets. They they didn't vote for it. It just appeared one day, as they said, it just popped up, one, as you said, one after the other and by, and by the and by the bus stops when children go to school and so there's no control over that and so and and the the response of local government is sort of very very piecemeal that they they have um you know that slowly they try and um make fast food outlets healthier but the problem you've got is that a lot of fast food outlets are franchises they're controlled by big chicken companies the supply chain is very small there's a small number of companies that bring the food into london um and so a lot of those a lot of those shops are franchises and they have, they're small business people and they haven't really got much control. So the c- control goes beyond the local um, high street back to the along the food chain to the bigger companies for government action to get control over those. And so it's who has control over what we eat. And it's, it's very rarely on the high street or in our communities that we have any real control. You know that if if people work together on high streets, then, then a lot of community shops would want to would want to work with communities um, to deliver foods that 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 families wanted on their high streets. Um, and so, some of the mums I interviewed, I showed them photographs, for example, of um of um, um a supermarket in Blackheath, of all places. If anyone knows Blackheath, Blackheath, and it was um it was a lovely little shop. It's a supermarket, and one of the mums said, "Oh, that." That, that looks like a health food shop. I said, oh, do you know what this is? She said, oh, that looks like a health food shop. Um, and then she said, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't look, she said, it looks very nice. It doesn't look life threatening. So when that mother said it doesn't look life threatening, what that meant to me was that in her high street, and when she looked at the pictures of shops in her high street, what she saw was, was pictures, was, was food shops that were life threatening to her child. So, it's how do we give control to people? How do we have proper food democracy to enable that right to food is, is the big question. And we can't have the right to food unless it is tied to a real meaningful local democracy. This is what I found very interesting about the campaign is that it actually opens up a whole series of other questions because, you know, you start with something which, as you said, was enshrined in the UN Declaration of Human Rights back in uh, 1948 and then and then confirmed again in 1966 but like as people on the left are always aware there's a huge gap between what liberal institutions say is a right and then actually how capitalism delivers that or not i mean there's lots of things in the un declaration of human rights there's the right to housing you know there's the right to work there's all kinds of things but obviously capitalism as a market system uh, absolutely cannot and will not deliver that right for every single person and the right to food i think is really interesting because that's an even more fundamental thing i mean obviously housing is also a basic need but the right to food uh also as you said opens up then a whole question around how do we guarantee a, a wider range of democracy to ensure these things because the level of discussion in our society at the moment is is so shallow it's um it's basically people like jamie oliver coming in fat shaming people urging people to eat more 
healthily, but really ignorant around, around what kind of people's budgets are. But also not just that time as well. I think there's a very interesting thing where I saw a video on YouTube, uh, which was talking about Jamie Oliver's obsession with chicken nuggets. You know, he's like, he's waging this war on chicken nuggets. He says, chicken nuggets are really bad. Children shouldn't eat chicken nuggets. They're really, you know, awful. But what's interesting is you can get relatively healthy chicken nuggets as long as you're using good quality chicken and other ingredients. But if you want to not get something like that, that's considered kind of borderline junk food or even junk food, like you can go to a McDonald's or a, or a kind of KFC or just a, a chicken shop and get that. And you know that it won't be very nutritious or you can make it at home. But it's not just the cost of making that at home. It's it's also the time that goes in. And I think this is one of the things when, you know, when we talk about the individual families trying to get time to make decent meals, which are nutritious, when people are often rushed off their feet, they're exhausted after work. That's right. When I did my research, then it was um, time was a key factor there. And so like one of the parents I interviewed, she was a, um, a, a bus driver mum who's now on strike. Um, but she was married to her husband is a um, post office worker. He was having to do 50 scheduled hours a week. He had to work these hours. And so it meant for that couple, um, she was working shifts. He was working 50 hours. And so organising their family life around that was really, really difficult. Um, one of the things that she advocated was we need these community kitchens. We needed to have people on the high streets. We needed people, you know, we needed outlets on the high streets that were affordable, but we also needed fa family shops on the high streets where, you know, family kitchens on the high streets where people can go and eat as a family, like social clubs and families. That one person, that one mum, she was also doing voluntary work within her community. So she was she was doing voluntary work. Part of her voluntary work was running a, you know, was running a kids' club. Part of this was um, was feeding children in the club. And she said the reason why she did that was because there was other parents who were who even who were even busier, who had less time than what she and her husband did, and so in working class communities, you had this coming together of of workers who understood each other's needs and were trying to do something, um, but also saw solutions. Also saw the solutions lay on the high streets and that things could be different. They could have community kitchens. They could have different ways of looking after their families through food. They were, do, they were supporting each other, which I call it was a collective ethic of care, that there was a real a class ethic of care. Is, there's another way you could look at it. Um, and again, that's something that's an Ian Burns project is to um, campaign for community kitchens or community restaurants. Um, which have, which have been established in the UK like in the post-Second World War years. There was a whole network of, of community restaurants. Um, and it's it's going back to that. So it's not it's not anything new. Um, in some ways, it's what the miners' wives did, you know, it's what the Black Panthers did. It's something what we do, always do in our communities. So going back to your question, your issue on time, then yeah, so again it leads time, it it leads into everything. It's yeah, time is it time is massive, but but despite lack of time, people still find time to look after each other and to look after each other's children through food. So you mentioned community kitchens. That's one of the uh, five key elements to the Right to Food campaign that I was reading about. You, It's community kitchens, uh, universal free school meals, uh, yeah. reasonable portions in benefits and wages, which you mentioned uh, already, uh, insured food security and independent enforcement. Is that the sort of... Are those the five kind of key thrusts of the campaign at the yeah. moment? Yeah. 
what would what would independent enforcement look like? What kind of organisation do you think would be able to do that? I haven't asked Ian Byrne about this. What I, um, for me, at the institutional level, then obviously there's got to be major reform at the institutional level, and it's got to be accountability. Um, but as a as a sort of activist, plus you know somebody who's just trying to campaign on the ground, it's. Um, as of yet, we haven't really thought through a lot of the institutional changes. I mean, at a local level, council at the council level, but I suppose you could look at it there about what happens at the council level and how the, the levels of scrutiny and how it all, all need, how everything needs to be much more accountable and open at, at the at the local democracy end. So I think from the national level, then the the independence. I mean, for me, then it would it would have to come back to um, you know who's independent, and so it'd have to be scrutiny by by trade unions, by community organisations. Um, for me, a lot of these demands are a foot in the door. That if you can get a government to agree to these, it's a foot in the door for bigger change. And so, for example, in Brazil, going back, you know, uh, decades ago under Lula, then the workers, then there was a whole, I think in the 2000s, in the, the mid to late 2000s, then there was a whole series of um, food councils were set up and there were some indigenous groups. It was going, it was people going back to the land. It was the idea of land sovereignty, of the rights to indigenous lands and the right to food. They came together to form a national food council. And then in, then Lula brought that into the um he brought that into one of the first Workers' Party governments. And so they had a, a, a food, a, a national food council. So it's an association of all the food councils. My understanding of that was that it was very, very grassroots based. And I think that's what we need here is some sort of grassroots based food council system that comes together to form a bigger national food council. But I think that there has to be a high level of real democracy and accountability in that. So for me, sort of an independent type of scrutiny has to come through that sort of body um, and not through a body of the, well, maybe the NGOs as well, but not through a lobbying body um, or through, you know, an independent, some sort of parliamentary scrutiny body, but it's got to be outside of the parliament. It's always quite limited uh, if you rely on NGOs, uh, in my experience. They can only go so far, um, especially when you're potentially raising a slogan which, or, you know, a demand or an idea which appears sort of on one level pretty mainstream, you know, the idea of the right to food. But I think as you've started to talk about it, it kind of raises almost revolutionary implications. Like if you were to really do it, if you were to really actually guarantee everyone the right to food that goes beyond you know really what kind of parliament or you know the current capitalist market system is really willing to do or or, or even the most radical charities it really poses quite big ruptures with how we understand the idea of food as a commodity for instance do you yeah. do you think that's kind of heading in the right direction yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, one, you can't have the right to food without your other basic human rights. So you can't have the right to food without your right to housing because you need to, you need a house in order to cook. Um, you know, you need the right, you need the, you know, um, uh, the right to work. You need to, you know, you, you need your other basic human rights in order to have the right to food. So, so they are all interconnected. Um, and then also with, you know, under capitalism, then it, you know, everything is incremental and everything is only given for a short period of time until it's taken back. Free school meals is an example of that. You can have national food, school food standards is an example of that. You know, it's a seesaw of, of when we have it and when we don't have it. One government gives it, another takes it back. 
And so it's, it's, a, it's so running through that. It's not about the right to health. It's not running through that. It's not running about, it's not about the right to children to have, you know, equity in education through having good nutrition. Um, it comes down to political will. And so, um, you know, it'll always change until there's governments established that are going to, you know, stand for, um, you know, stand for the majority of people. That's, that's you know, sort of the key thing. Well, I mean, I was just kind of wanting to probe your thoughts a little bit about how radical the campaign could go. I mean, like, I know like this is kind of Ian Byrne's thing as well. And obviously, like, Ian Byrne will take it as far as kind of Ian Byrne will take it. I mean, for me, I just like the idea of the campaign because I think it poses something that's actually much more radical, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was speaking the other week at a... Um, um, well, I, was, I was on the same platform as somebody from the Food Foundation and others. And uh, we were asked, one of the questions we were asked was, um, if you were prime minister for a day, um, what would you, and you looking at the supermarkets, what would you do? What ones, what, how would you, what would you, what would you do? And so others were saying things like, oh, you know, sugar smart campaigns and other campaigns. I just, and I just said, nationalize them. <laughs> it's all, um, only one person in the audience cheered me and no one, you know, and it was sort of silence, but it's, and, and that was very, you know, that was a very shorthand answer. But supermarkets have got so much control over what we eat and they make so much profit. Um, profitability, even in this crisis, you know, it's, it's profiteering out of our crisis. You know, the, the grain companies, the whole chain of food, the global chain of food that comes through into our supermarkets. It's all just it's all it's profiteering. It's 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 making you know making profits out of our out of our health in the end, about our, out of our ability to eat or not eat affordability and um so with yeah and there has to be a democrat you know there have to be you know there has to be radical solutions to how we to how we run a food system in that this country and that does for me that means there has to be um a shift away from a market-based system of where we have all of that inequality around food and inequality in nutrition um and and we we have more control. And so to have control, there has to be a central planning. There has to be some sort of central control over the food that we grow. There has to be a national food plan around over the food that we grow and how and how we and how that food is linked globally, so how we access the food that we need and how that's distributed. There's no question of there ever being a shortage of food. It's just who can afford the shortages of food for poor people, but not for others. And so it's about the distribution of food. And so the only way to ensure that is through, you know, central planning, through procurement, being able to use the land, being able to do urban food growing, doing all the things that we need to do. Plus, you know, linking with other countries to share food in the way that we need to share food. And that's um, so that we can, you know, so that food is properly sourced, procured, it's brought into communities according to what communities need. And so... The, the, you know, the conversation goes back to what communities need and their democratic voice, their democratic control over the food system. So how that works, I think, you know, for me, it has to go back to the local, you know, local democracy, local food councils um, that decide what they need, how that links into, um, you know, planning at a local level, planning at a central level um, and, um, and nationally. I mean, one might say it's radical, but I, I don't know if it is. I mean, it's, it's what's got it's it's how do you feed people and how do you save the planet? I mean, what has to happen? 
I'd, so I'm very much, I'm still very much strongly socialist. And it's, um, I think the, the key to the food system in the UK has got to be democratic control over the food system. Yes, I think like the point you're making is very interesting because it obviously is about, I mean, the idea of the right to food obviously actually shouldn't be radical. It should just be a given. You know, it's kind of in Maslow's hierarchy of needs right at the bottom. But I guess it's the disjunction between the the society that we've built or had forced on us, I guess you could say, and the fact that that society cannot provide the basics for so many people, or it can do, but only... If you can, if you take part in the commodification of your labour and your work, and you know all that, all like all the stresses that society forces on you in order for you to then to be able to get the money that you need to buy the things you want, and that's that's the problem is the is that the society that we have at the moment is 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 so in, inhumane and cruel around even the basics. Uh, one one of the things I was thinking about in a in a potential future society the right to food under a socialist economy, then we begin to try and decommodify food as much as possible. So, um, uh, mm. you know, you'd pick, you know, the top 10 things, you know, bread and, and obviously bread's not particularly nutritious, but it's kind of like a stable of many people's diets, vegetables and, 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 and things like that. And then you try and get into a situation where those things were free. Um, those things were provided yeah. with the kind of basic. So, so uh, and then obviously you'd still spend money on some food things, maybe things which were a bit more scarce or things which were a bit harder to produce. The idea of trying to decommodify food as quickly as you can under socialism so that you just go into a supermarket and you would just take the food you want. You really need yeah. to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's I mean, obviously, it comes down to control, of the, you know, who, who controls the food, who owns and controls the food companies. And then and what's produced and then what's planned. Um, and at the moment, I mean, my concern at the moment is that there's less and less control and there's very little control of communities over anything that's happening around food. And the, 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 the direction of travel at the moment is that, the, you know, is that there is less control that through, through, for example, the food bank system, through the, through the whole system that's been set up through, um, you know, food insecurity and emergency food aid, then very, in, very more and more, we're having to accept a lot of poor quality food coming into our communities. You know, through the idea of sort of recycle, you know, the um, um, you know, cycling of food, then food that would have been meant meant for the rubbish dumps comes into our into our communities, um, and it's it's and it's very it's um, you know, it's it's an injury on people, both often on the workers who are doing it, and and in our communities. And so, for example, in some of in some of the uh, some of the places I've been, I've got photographs of it. You have um. Uh, bin liners full of um, sandwiches that have come from Tesco's that are um, not, they're not fit for consumption. They've just, they've, they've, they've got so much water in the packaging yet somehow, it, you know, you get these bin liners of, of um, inedible sandwiches finding its way through the um, big food distributors, you know, Fair Share, Felix and others, City Harvest and others. I mean, it happens not all the time, but it does happen. And it's, and it finds its way into working class communities. And then then you know, often it's the women, it's the mothers on the estates who are having to sift through these bags and throw them out. But the but the feed but the feeling of injustice that they have 
it's not even just they, they feel very angry discriminated against and, and they feel angry that this food has made its way into their communities for them to throw out but it's also for me it's also from the point of view of the workers in tesco so having to bin all that who are having to put all that stuff into the bin liners because I'm, I'm assuming that they they probably put it into the bags really really quickly because they're just being told to clear the shelves and so there's no element of care coming from the workforce about the food about what happens to that food and where does it go and so there's it's um and i'm sure that the workers at the tesco end are having to put that food in those bags wouldn't don't feel good about doing that if they know how it, how when it ends up on the council estates how people at that end feel i don't know if that makes sense to you but there's this whole sort of um you know discrimination that goes on that working for that through food we we have no control over it because of that, the jobs that we do because of so the whole in, in food insecurity system at the moment is quite um you know it's, it's very discriminatory it's very oppressive toward working class people both the workers often in, in supermarkets who are having to package up the, the, this food um and they're probably hungry themselves you know, they often they have food banks in some of these places now in, in supermarkets and then it's um and it finds its way onto the council estates that often you'll get you know almond milk going onto the estates and it's it's on it's on the day that it's got to be used um and so often you you know i almond milk is you know it's people drink it more now but it's still an acquired taste um unless you've got an allergy or a, you know um intolerance food intolerance but i've seen i've gone into and you, you've seen again mums just pouring it down the sink in the community centres because they can't and it so it becomes a waste of their time um that they're just pouring this stuff down the milk down the sink um so they feel very angry about it but this is what's happening through the food through this this um you know the food and the, the emergency food aid system it's suppressing people it's making us feel that we that there's a second class food that's coming into our communities um, food that was meant for the rubbish dumps, but it's coming into the communities because we can't afford anything different. Um, and also, it's the you know it's it's propping up the wealth you know the uh, a low wage economy because wages can be kept low because some of the food costs are now food that's going into social supermarkets. It's meant to be food that costs less. Um, austerity retail, it's called, um, but it's still it's still you know used to prop up a low wage economy. And it and it leads yeah and I can talk about that for a while because it does. The other element of that is 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 about the food voluntariat that's grown up for the emergency food aid system. It's replaced real jobs. Yeah. You mean you mean the food bank kind of voluntary yeah. networks? Yeah. That once upon a time that would have been done. I'm a dietitian, so once upon a time a lot of that work would have been carried out by community nutrition assistants. It would have been or public health nutrition assistants. It would have been people in job, relatively decent salary, on a with national nationally agreed paid in conditions. That's all been broken up since austerity, since two thousand and ten. A lot of jobs have been replaced by by volunteer labour in the um, in the emergency food system. One of the things I've noticed is that food banks hugely escalated around twenty ten, obviously because of austerity and so on. It was kind of seen as a, a mark of shame to have so many food banks in an area and there was a lot of political pressure because it was saying, well, these food banks now exist because of all the poverty and the reduction in wages and so on. Uh, and it's interesting now, if you skip forward 10 years later, 12 years later, you have Tory MPs 
going to the opening of their local food banks and then giving speeches about how important their local food banks are. And it just shows you how these things get normalised. It goes from, yes. like, there's a sense of shame that there's an area that needs so many food banks because it's an area where there's a lot of poverty and really low wages or unemployment. And now it's sort of the celebration of the act of charity by these yes. Tory MPs, of course, who are passing legislation which is creating the need for the yeah. food banks. And it's yeah. really, yeah, I mean, it's really, like, it's really upsetting in that sense to see how these things get normalised. And, yeah. and then what was a political stigma gets turned into political capital by by yeah. by some politicians yeah and they're celebrating the undermining of the welfare state I mean, when they celebrate the opening of a food bank they you know for them it's another win for another win because they're gradually restructuring the welfare state undermining the welfare state and so restructuring it around charitable good rather than rights so that's my concern going forward is that you know, we need governments that are really going to turn this around I mean, that's why the movement is needed that's why you need a movement and it's got to come from the grassroots it's got it's got to come from the people involved and on the ground um, who are suffering from these discriminations to say that we're not charity cases you know this is our right it's our children's right it's you know it's their right to eat it's their right to an education that's why we need to build a movement because until a Labour government or government breaks you no know, liberalism, then you're going to, um, we'll probably still have the, the food banks there, but the food banks have got to go. And we need the re-establishment of a, of a fully funded welfare state, public health nutrition system. And that's the important thing about building a movement. I remember in 2019 when the general election was happening and there was an interview with a woman on the news and she said that she couldn't support Jeremy Corbyn because Jeremy Corbyn was going to close her local food bank. Now, right. obviously... What Jeremy Corbyn had said was that he wanted to build a country which didn't need food banks or, you know, yeah. so he would be closing food banks because people wouldn't need to use them anymore. Yeah. But she took it to mean he's going to close my local food bank. Uh, yeah. And I think for me, and I don't know if she was actually secretly a Tory and, you know, whatever, but if if we take a comment at face value, it shows you the importance of building a political movement. Yeah which is embedded in these communities, which is, you know, which is which is just clarifying what the arguments are uh, yeah. as much as anything else. So making sure that people feel empowered and strengthened to make choices. And, and, and I guess that is one of the problems of always seeking a parliamentary route to trying and solve something. Some people can find it quite alienating and it feels like politicians coming in and you don't quite trust them or something like that. Whereas... As you said, if you can build a movement from below, as well as involving the trade unions and workers' organisations more generally, then that then that creates a space for kind of empowerment. This idea of of people being aware that um, that even twenty years ago they would have been paid for the work that they're doing. Not, none of the big unions organise food bank workers, and I think that's one of the things that needs to be done. That we need the labour movement needs to take seriously organising food, not just food banks, but food project workers. Right, we have to wrap up here, but tell us, are there any ways people can get involved or like, how can they help with the campaign in general? Well, the main thing at the moment is universal free school meals. That is, a, that is cause obviously this week. And um, I think because of the importance of feeding children, then that's the, um, that, that is the sort of key pressure on the government. If, if, and the, the, um, the, for all the limitations of the, you know, I think there's got to be complete, um, new organisations built globally that are going to democratic organisations that are going to fight along socialist lines. But at the moment, groups like the UN are, are raising issues around universal free school meals as one of the essential things we need internationally in order to tackle food insecurity. 
So um, there is going to be a lot of pressure. And so getting involved around the campaign for universal free school meals is really important. And also arguing that it should be for secondary school students as well, not just primary school students. The right to food campaign at the moment, that's one of our critical campaigns, is around universal free school food in primary and secondary schools, um, as well as the community kitchens. And so just to say in London, we also campaign for open access to emergency food food aid centres. So they shouldn't, so we should have an end to the means testing and end to referral systems. And it should be open access so anybody who needs foods can get food. And the way that that can be got, again, is through the, the school kitchens. Um, that if we could access our school kitchens, which at the moment we can't access our school kitchens because most of them are run by the multinational companies, then if, but if we had control of our school kitchens, we'd be able to feed people in need. So around the right to food, there are some core demands around the schools, around open access, around community kitchens, as well as around a living wage. So it's getting involved in your local community, either linking up with Ian Byrne nationally via his website or with Right to Food London through our website. Um, if you're living in London and we're organised in most of the boroughs, um, you, you know, I'm a socialist, but you don't have to be a socialist. I'm just probably socialist listening to this, but you don't have to be a socialist. It's all people who are critical of the system, whether they're socialist or not, get involved in this. People who are just, you know, a lot of the football supporters see themselves as non-political. A lot of food workers see themselves as non-political and they want to get involved. So this isn't just a space for socialists. This is a space for anybody who believes in the right to food for whatever reason they believe in it. So, um, you know, faith, people of different faiths as well. Everyone should get involved if they can um, in their boroughs and just contact us through our websites. We're going to be in Lewisham, for example, we had a um, we campaign on the ground and we had a, um, a hunger march in Lewisham. And we're looking to holding other hunger marches in other parts of London. Um, and there'll be other national initiatives around um, hunger marches around, you know, organising people. Um, so there'll be a lot going on, sort of going into the new year. And of course, linking up with, with Enough is Enough, because Right to Food is one of the founding members or groups of, of um, Enough is Enough as well. So linking up with them so we can give solidarity um, through food. Okay, Sharon, thank you very much. If you enjoyed that episode of Anti Capitalist Resistance Radio, don't forget to subscribe and share around. You can also write to us at acradio at anticapitalistresistance.org. We look forward to hearing from you.